Let me tell you something. I want you to listen to me, okay? This is not your country. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers, may contain strong language, and finally will involve a discussion about racism, representation in cinema, and racist terms used within the context of the film that listeners may find offensive. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Romper Stomper. Starring Russell Crowe. I want people to know that I'm proud of my white history and my white blood. One day might be all I have. Jacqueline McKenzie. You had it all on a plate, but no, you had to play silly buggers with a car. You're a loser. And Daniel Pollock. Mm, grandma, you know, she doesn't like the badges or anything. I don't want to upset her. Directed by Jeffrey Wright. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Hey Gabe, any chance of getting that recipe for pasta and vegetables? Looks yummy. It's Gally in Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> and reluctant to do an out-of-context quote. It's Devlin in London. The big men have arrived. It's Patrick from London. What is wrong? Why are my Lieblings barking so? It's Matt in South Korea. Welcome, listeners. Uh, welcome back to the show. And, uh, and welcome back to a, a throwback. Uh, a throwback that is yours, Patrick, and um, an unusual choice because my understanding is, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that actually you've chosen something that you you yourself had not seen. So I guess the first question I have to ask is, why Romper Stomper? The only way this does relate to a throwback for me a little bit is because my dad has been going on about this film for years. We've had the DVD for... I don't know how long, 15 years maybe, quite a long time. And he's always been desperate for me to see it. Um, uh, I'm not saying he, he's a, essentially a fan of this film, but my dad seems to, and always has an affinity with, uh, <laughs> kind of realistic toned down beatings in films. He always comments on them and he always like, uh, that film, was it Croupier with Clive Owen? Mm-hmm. Um, he loves the beating up in that film because it, it impresses him. Like he finds, he doesn't really like the showy choreographed fight sequences in films. He loves things that look to him, uh, or remind him of when he was a punk rocker in the seventies and he got beaten up a few times. Um, that remind him of actual, like physical, realistic beatings. And I think that's why he liked this film. And it's the things that he always mentions in it is because, oh yeah, good, great fights and they're brutal. Yeah. And so in a way, this is my apology to my dad that I've not watched it earlier. And it was something I, I was kind of keen for us to try and watch something that none of us have ever seen before to get a proper fresh pers- perspective at the same time. And I'm glad I achieved it. Um, I took a punt, romper stomper because I wanted to see it. Um, I think there's a bit of prevalence in today's society, the context of this film, Gally, uh, I think we'll all agree. And uh, I'd watched, I'd also recently watched Louis Theroux's Time Amongst the Nazis, Um, one of his documentary things, it's available on Netflix when he was in America. Um, And that kind of piqued my interest a little bit in the subject. And that's why I picked it. 
but mm. of course, usually we do first impressions. Um, sorry, usually we do like experiences with the films for all of us, but none of you have seen it. So, do, Gally, do you want to do like a first impression, like and discuss yeah, that now? I think that's probably, um, yeah, that's probably. I think it's a good thing to do because uh, certainly from my perspective, I don't think I've seen a film that I've had such a visceral reaction to since. Uh, yeah, you guys ever see Gaspar Noir's Irreversible? Yeah. Mm. I I feel quite deeply conflicted with this one, Patrick, um, because the depictions on screen versus the technical filmmaking on display to how they elicit the reaction from me. Yeah, I um, it's a real powerful film. Uh, I'll try and keep my sandwiches in the lunchbox, but. Um, you know, we, we, the one thing you can ask of, of, a, of a film, of any film, is that it, it kind of engages you, um, however it does. And, uh, and this film definitely engaged and has sat with me since I watched it for the first time last week. Um, so without giving too much away, that was my first reaction was just how, uh, how brutal and how powerful the film was. Um, but as to whether or not, uh, you know, enjoyed is probably the wrong word, but wh- how I rate the film, well... We'll discuss that going forward. What about you, uh, Devlin? Well, I was I was aware of this one, but I'd, I'd never seen it, and I don't know if I know anyone who'd really seen it. Even though it, um, I I sort of put it in the, the uh, grouping of films that um, tends to be like you know people basically of our generation and of our sort of demographic, really, which is like um, young suburban white guys who want to be interesting. So there's like a, a pantheon of films that we're all supposed to watch. And uh, this was very much on the kind of the outer outer edges of that. Um, it was always seen as, I think, a little bit kind of legitimately a bit dangerous. Uh, I remember the DVD kind of floating around in, in, in shops and people would talk about the film. But um, so, I, I, yeah, I was intrigued to, to finally sit down and watch it. Um, similar to, to Galley, um, I think uh, I actually really struggled to, to get into it. I, I do uh the time I watched it I have only seen it once now uh it was my third time of sitting down and trying to get into it never really felt like like the time like like the you know the mood to be in it had been a, a long time since I'd sat and watched something that was kind of I would say more so than 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 shocking although it is it's also a, it's extremely provocative much in the same way that a Gaspar Noé movie is like it is there not just to be shocking, but to provoke reactions from you. Um, and maybe it's a, a sign of getting older that uh, I hadn't really sought out that kind of film for a while, even though a lot of the films that I do like would be considered possibly a bit outre or a bit ridiculous or a bit gross or whatever. Uh, they tend to sit in quite a safe little box of, of you know, genre filmmaking where you can get away with stuff like that and it can just be... Um, you know, a fiction that, you know, you can, you can sit and watch as many gross out horror movies as you like, because it's going to be neatly ensconced in this, in this bubble of, of clearly being a, a outside of reality. Whereas, yeah, this was, uh, this was definitely, uh, a, 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 an unusual watch and, and kind of brought me back to some of the sort of films that I watched maybe when I was younger, um, which I think would be good to discuss some of those as well in contrast to this. But, um, yeah bit of a bracing one how about you matt uh, i had the 
title Romper Stomper around the Darlington College BTEC era. Uh, I, I did a BTEC media course in 1999 and 2001 after after school, and we had all kinds of misfits aboard that train. Uh, I think the problem with a lot of these post GCSE media courses is that they attract some of the laziest kids in the world and sort of mix them with with people who actually want to be there and who are actually interested in film or tv or radio so um you sort of find yourself in these battles with people to get things done um a lot of the people on the course were just there to take drugs and and doss about um but having said that film school wasn't that much different but um so it was my darling college friends that mentioned it um they raved about romper stomper they were all male obviously and uh the lads were all really into russell crowe at that point um, we'd seen gladiator together at the cinema and uh crowe was sort of basking in his gladiator fame and we knew him through la confidential too um and he was often described as a real man by <laughs> these lads and the the other the chaps on the course so um i, I didn't actually see the film but i always thought of Romper Stomper is this unseen companion piece to American History X, which I had seen an, an awful lot at the time. And uh, again, you know, a, a, that was a film that was often quoted out of context and, uh, you know, dealing with a topic that was perhaps a little advanced for our wrestling-centric crowd at the time. Um, but in in spite of, like, all the hype at college, I, I didn't actually watch it until until Patrick picked it for this one. So, and, and I've also... Similar to you, Devlin, only seen it once. So any thoughts that I do share today are quite raw first impressions. I kind of, I, what you're saying Matt, with American History X, I was thinking of Made in Britain as well. To Me too, yeah. Story. And also I watched the Louis Theroux thing. Um, yeah, how interesting is that? It's fantastic. There's there's a couple of things I noted down. There's the notorious racist Tom Metzger yeah. and his shifty lawyer. Like the, the, two, the two characters in there are, are like fascinating, it, really. It is and fascinating the, to watch that. There's a bit in the garage where Louis, uh, sort of, the gang confronts Louis and asks him whether he's Jewish or not. And he's actually brave enough to, to not answer them, which I, I really respected him for. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, then there's the two little girls, Lamb and Lynx. Uh, oh, they singing the songs. Trying to get this career based on hate and prejudice that they've been fed. So it did kind of inform... Um, this film a little bit it helped me kind of get into the the headspace of it it's interesting seeing what i call a foreign film now i don't really know the australian uh politics where life or how how immigration may have been working around the time so it kind of it, it was kind of a shocking view of australia to me to see a bleak industrial kind of film you know at the time, what was our impression in the UK of Australia? It was probably home and away or neighbours, right? Mm. Yeah, um, wholesome, wholesome completely. Yeah, wholesome, sunny beat. Well, you mentioned Alan Clark, which I, I immediately felt it, it, it was like a souped up Alan Clark. Um, you know, and I much prefer Alan Clark's films, but, you know, he, he did Made in, in Britain and oh, yeah. Scum and uh, The Firm. And, you know, th he's less kind of overwrought. He's a bit more subdued. At times, and and it's but it's a very naturalistic approach to to filmmaking. So I urge anyone to seek out those films first of all. And an Elephant Two is very interesting, which sort of served as a precursor and a sort of namesake to Gus Van Sant's Columbine uh, movie, uh, which was I've also always, called out Elephant. I've always been keen to watch um, uh, Alan Clark's Elephant. I I remember I was I really enjoyed um, well not enjoyed I thought 
Gus Van Sant Sullivan uh, was was great, and yeah, I yeah. never really. I, it was one of those kind of connections that I just heard bits and pieces about. Well, it's it's this relentless, um, cold, repetitive violence that makes you sort of say, "Okay, stop now, no more. Don't make another scene that looks like that." Or it just gets so repetitive. And of course, that's the whole point of the the troubles in mm-hmm. in Ireland and uh, the, the the repetition of the violence. So it's a real artistic piece. I think it's fantastic. It's not quite as easy to absorb as the other three that I mentioned, but yeah, have a look at Alan Clark's stuff if you've if you've never seen any. Just to try and induce some humour into today's conversation, because I don't think there's going to be much. Um, for some reason, when we were watching, when I watched this for the first time, I had an image of, I was expecting an image of Russell Crowe naked on a horse in a, in a river. Uh, I thought that was that film, which is, <laughs> which is in fact Hammers Over the Anvil. Um, for some reason, I had. I thought it was Isn't that, that film. Aussie too. That's an Aussie film. It is, yeah, yeah. And I don't know why, but that was what that was a scene I was expecting. So imagine my uh, disappointment. <laughs> You're expecting a dream sequence or something to to crop up. Yeah. That's like a Blade Runner insert shot just into your brain <laughs> yeah. about what this is going to be. <laughs> I don't know why. I just I, there was this. Just been this everlasting image of him naked riding a horse in a river. Um, for some reason in my past, I've picked up on it and I thought it was this film, but I can just imagine you about an hour into this, just thinking, <laughs> how is he going to get to a river <laughs> and where is he going to get a horse from? Yeah. I, yeah, man, when, when the nudity in his not horse riding, sadly. Well, there you go. A little bit of humour before it all gets a bit serious. So, Patrick, for us um, and for the listeners, can you give us a plot summary for Romper Stomper? This is not your country. A bold statement from Hando, the leader of a gang of violent young neo-Nazis who attack three teenage Vietnamese Australians in an underpass at the beginning of the film. Davy is Hando's right-hand man, living, uh, living as it were under the shadow of Hando, um, as their eyes fall upon Gabe at the pub. Gabe is an epileptic with an awful history with her father, and starts a relationship with Hando, who woos her with a stolen jacket and passages of Mein Kampf rather than poetry. Another attack of the Vietnamese Australian residents takes place in a brutally extended and frantic brawl as the neo-Nazis are left licking their wounds and are on the run and in hiding. Hando wants revenge, but after a failed robbery due to their own stupidity, a mutiny and a police raid that really shocks, Hando, Davy and Gabe go on the run. Hando, desperate for escape at the expense of Gabe, but Davy has the last say, stabbing him in the neck on the beach uh, as Japanese tourists watch on. That is Romper Stomper. I've left out some uh, big details that we'll, we'll discuss there, but... Yeah, well, we'll unpick those details. It's a brutal film, and I totally agree with the sentiment, Patrick. Although I do remember a slew of Australian films that I did gravitate towards, including one that was released the same year as Romper Stomper, which was Strictly Ballroom, and I remember all of them. I don't know if you guys oh, yeah. have seen it. They've all got a, a quite a little bit of an edge. Do you remember even like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert has got a bit of an edge to it. Um, mm. And the other one is um, Muriel's Wedding with Tony Collette, which plays off like a, a kind of sort of eccentric comedy. But actually, if you knuckle down into the detail of the story, it's quite a serious drama. Its reputation is, is kind of mismatched, isn't it? it? It's it's almost seen as like my, my big fat Greek wedding or something. It's actually one of Ridley Scott's favourite films. So seeing this, anyway, Romper Stomper, 
it shot it's kind of shut me to the core and and to the point where matt you made the the parallel to american history x and i'd actually just coincidentally had just watched it with my fiance before patrick had picked this so it was really at the forefront of my mind and then it led me to ask the question which is is it a dangerous film well there's a quote from Wright. uh which would suggest one school of thought on it. Uh, he said, this is a film that should be told, not cowardly editorialized. Let the plot and the consequences of the character's actions do the talking. And uh, to kind of back him up, Crow said, um, opposite to what it felt like it might do, which suggests problems already, because what did he think it might do? Uh, he said, it, it puts it puts so much of a spotlight on those series of beliefs and the nihilism uh, that it just wasn't cool anymore, which again, I kind of reject. It's kind of typical self-righteous stuff from Crow. And it's mm-hmm. like his film ended racism in Australia. Congratulations. Um, you know, he'll probably write a rubbish song about that one day. <laughs> but, uh, you know, th- th- those were the, th- w- that was one side of it. And then the other side was the David Stratton side, who's a, a critic in Australia who refused to rate the film. Mm-hmm. He, he cited what he described as a, a duty of care. He gave it zero stars as a way to say the filmmaking is excellent, but I'm, uh, you know, it would be irresponsible of me to to rate this film. Uh, and Jeffrey Wright got his revenge years later, apparently by pouring wine on him, uh, calling him a pompous windbag in Venice. And uh, I think this was the quote: uh, "Stay, stay the fuck away from my films, you fucker," was what he said to him. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really speak to the guy as a real. As like a responsible, you know, purveyor of high art, is it? It's 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 a pretty petulant act. And if you're going to make something that is a very clearly a very provocative film and a film that is supposed to push buttons with people, that's that's what it's there for. And then you're surprised that somebody gets their buttons pushed by it. I think it's kind of the um, it doesn't show a level of maturity that you might hope for when you're dealing with a topic like this. Not saying that you know, that he's irresponsible for doing so. But um... Well, I, I'd usually be 100% on board with the director in these types of situations, but I don't think Wright is a, a very intelligent filmmaker and, and antics like that only go against his argument, yeah. you know, and they reveal his true intellect. And, and if you look at his bare bones filmography, of which I'd only seen uh, the teen exploitation horror uh, Cherry Falls. I don't know if anyone's oh, yeah. seen that one. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, it's got Years Michael Bean in it, hasn't it? Of course, yeah. Watch anything <laughs> with Michael Bean. following Michael Bean around. Yep. Um, so, yeah, at, at first glance, it seemed extreme of David Stratton to refuse to even star the film. But um, I think maybe he should have just rated it rather poorly instead because uh, I yeah. didn't really agree that it's excellent filmmaking either. I... I I don't think it's a great film, and I think uh, it, it's quite easy to dismiss it. Um, I I don't think we should be giving it more power by kind of hyping it up too much. I am against censorship for the most part and remain very liberal in my life. And when it comes to film censorship, I, I just kind of found myself agreeing with Stratton to a, to a degree here. But um, I, I don't know if it's so effective that it could be dangerous, but I don't see much of a moral conscience in there and in the hands of some you know not the art loving elites of the world like the intellectuals who can somehow read into it like among uh, the youth uh, in particular i think there is potential for misunderstanding or copycat violence and i just kept asking myself what the message of the film was uh, if if it is the elephant in the room in australia that needed to be discussed 
if that is true, then is this the right way to go about it? I think I think one thing to compare it to and to answer, Matt, is for, I think American History X is a more popular film, you know, being a US mm. film and at the time quite um, stylistic film as well. But they, the problem with we're going well into this already in the conversation, but one problem I did have was I was I was hoping for a little bit of guidance in uh, a morality within the film and a little bit of um, development for each character but Mm. you don't really get it do you I think the ambiguity of its morality much like a clockwork orange perhaps is is problematic in the film because as the plot goes you know I just to talk plot um with their uh attacks on the Vietnamese uh, Australian residents and who were trying to buy their pub and after we say uh, I think one of the Vietnamese guys says fucking next time we never see them again you know there's a kind of confusion into what what the I, I thought there was going to be some resolve there or mm. maybe in mm. in order to address these situations we were going to have <clears throat> it's, these um, problems that we have with the film is this resolve never came this it, it becomes more of a vendetta between people and, uh, you know, they're, they're like time bombs, these people. They're just imploding on themselves. Yeah. Gabe kind of there. I think she has some sort of morality in her getting her own back on her father, but it, it's a difficult one to follow, isn't it? In, in a kind of, yeah, in a well, usual narrative of a film. Well, Patrick, um, just to follow on from, yours and Matt's points uh, and American History X was like I said before very much at the forefront of my mind as a direct comparison yes more popular because it's an American film and yes there's it's, it's a little bit more stylistic you know they got black and white there's um, the, the filmmaking on display it's less raw and, and maybe you would suggest less kind of uh, of a documentary guerrilla filmmaking as, as romper stomper but the thing that I found kind of really strange was the ideology never really gets challenged. And actually, Jeffrey Wright might argue this, but I don't think so. The, he's, the scenes in it where I think that he drops the ball, where I think he probably thinks that this is a way of, of kind of denouncing this ideology and challenging it. But in the end, it, it reaffirms. And the scene that I think did it for me was you know when the vietnamese australian father buys the pub why do we see that scene it doesn't mm-hmm. have no real relevance other than to support hando's belief that his entire um local area was being swarmed and taken over by the because well, so, yeah because the characters don't have to find that out the gang uh, don't know that that's happening to their pubs so I, I would we, argue we, though that yeah. they, they would though wouldn't because there is a scene with the pub owner before when he's like, I don't give a fuck what they do. I don't care yeah. who comes here. So he, I would argue that there is that side of things anyway. Uh, you know, he, he's, well, you know, like as liberal as, and, as and also in, film. and also in American History X, the Ed Norton character who, you know, you would suggest is, is the Hando character equivalent. He has the redemptive mm-hmm. arc and he, 
he's, exactly. and you have you have the principal in American history actually you have Elliot Gould they challenge the beliefs so even though it's yeah. quite seductive when you watch an American history act mm-hmm. and you listen to Ed Norton spouse off about um, the, the some of the vile thinking it kind of sometimes and this is the danger not the danger but this is part of it you can from a one point of view go yeah that's true but then it gets challenged in romper stomper the the other scene that that i think he drops the ball on is davy the the right hand man he leaves the group but why does he leave the group he doesn't leave it because it's fallen apart he leaves mm. it because of girl and you go no he right. should be the one who says you know what hando this is all bullshit he doesn't, and and you could argue that that's yeah. more authentic. But in a film, when you're telling a story, that kind of subtext, I think it it resonates, and you you know consciously or unconsciously, you can't let that one slip. You have to be explicit, and the film doesn't do that. I'm I'm not sure whether I would have liked to see the the Damascus moment of the realization that actually this was all a terrible mistake, because I think that that would just be really um, uh, glib. And, and possibly just a, just, you can't go from this kind of super shocking. These guys are well into Nazism. They are racist to their core. If anyone were to flip and suddenly realize that maybe this isn't the way, uh, I just think it would be, you, you spent enough time with Ed Norton as a character in order to get, uh, a, a, a more natural kind of pathway out. You also spend a longer time with him in in terms of the film. It covers uh, years, I believe. So, uh, in something like this, which is which is such a kind of a little explosive device of this is something that happens over the course of just a couple of days. For anyone to have any kind of you know revelatory moment would have, I think, just been really inauthentic. I think that it's it's not that they needed that, but it, it that doesn't mean to say that they handled this tremendously well all the way throughout i think just that um i'm not sure whether that's the film i would have i would have seen from this mm-hmm. but um i i think um i was never i mean as a younger uh guy i probably watched american history x a, a few more times and uh i i think i i did like it and then i think so later on it it felt again a bit more kind of manipulative a little um Whereas uh, I was comparing this to, to This Is England more, which is yeah. um, a film where somebody is, is discussing, you know, racism from, from the inside out. And I think in that, I would be more inclined to go back to that to, to show the way that these kind of modes of thought, you know, you were saying, gals, that um, anytime somebody has to have like a reprehensible belief, if there's no kernel of like, it's not even truth. It's more just a, a believability or possibility. If someone can twist their personal logic to fit the ideology and the narrative, that if somebody can say the reason why you are sad or the reason why your life is, you think it's shit is because of that person over there. And that's easier for you than discussing, you know, the entire kind of structures of society and the way they're, uh, or even people's personal choices to be able to just say, nah, it's that person over there or that group of people. That's what makes it seductive, and I think This Is England had a, uh, a a really fantastic way of putting that on screen. And you could tell that this was something that Shane Meadows had gone through, and and the characters you had uh, you had people in there who you liked, you had people who you were on an emotional journey with them. But I don't think it felt like it was um, didactic, or it was you were being pulled one way or the other. 
there was something about This Is England that felt really kind of authentic and truthful. And while this had a lot of that to it, it also felt a little bit like an exploitation movie in a way. Mm -hmm. That's Um, what I've got in my notes as well, Devlin. Yeah. And and the problem, like with your, it's an excellent comparison, This Is England, because I had that as well. But I think the thing with that that holds me more is the problem I had and I kept writing down, I don't... I don't really understand where these people have come from in, in the film. And I, I couldn't get hold of their background. And when, when we get Gabrielle Gabe coming into the group, that's where I thought the conflict was going to be on a moral stance rather than a sexual, uh, environment. And that confused me even more because, you know, you get the other female characters who they, they take umbrage with the wanton use of guns and, and that violence, but they'll happily see people's heads getting kicked in. And I, th- I found some of the aspects of it confused in who these people were, what, why, where they actually came from, because there's no real mention of education. We don't really see the parents or, or what their upbringing was. We just understand that Hando is a, uh, is a really, um, uh, convicted um yeah, Nazi who who is the leader is kind of a fear, very fearless leader um and I mean he's electrifying Russell Crowe in the film where we'll talk about him more I'm sure but I understand the leadership it's just getting to grips with the the why and what caused this I found a bit problematic in the film because it's all just happening I wanted to know what, what, and I know the reason that they are neo-Nazis and racist, but I wanted to maybe just build up that development a bit more in the film. Well, the, the films that you're all mentioning are, are exactly the same as the things that I'd written down. I've got some Clockwork Orange stuff here. I've got some American History X and some This Is England. So I guess the, the, the American History X take is that uh, Derek's racism is kind of ignited by his father. We see where that comes from. Mm. Um uh, it's initially very casually around a dinner table and his, his father kind of harbored racism. Um, and, uh, but then he made no secrets or lies about how he truly felt about the black community. And in that story, he's a fireman who's killed in a black neighborhood, um, putting out a fire in a black neighborhood. So, you know, this could understandably pervert a confused young man's thinking. He's filled with grief uh, and hate and he wants justice of any kind. And he's, of course, wrong to blame an entire race for the death of his dad. But on some twisted level, we we get it. Um, the, the the film at least tried to show us why, and we see where his intolerance comes from. And we just hope that he can correct his mind and and get back to the person that he would have been before the the tragedy. There's there's nothing like that. Just show me anything like that. This is in, close in, to in a clockwork orange, isn't it? Because yeah, the, the the violence is mindless. When you when you meet the droogs in in clockwork orange, it is mindless violence to start the film and it's i I felt that connection too that there's an obvious parallel with the tramp uh there's a a homeless man and you know the the hando wears white trousers as well i don't know whether these i think that's a little nod to alex as well and there's also a home invasion which i felt was reminiscent uh it's sort of encroaching on a different class and taking over with this brutal force and controlling a situation and the use of classical music in that scene Mm -hmm. um but it does lack the visuals of kubrick and it kind of played a bit of as if it was a pastiche 
and yeah. and like the difference being, I think that that Kubrick shows the repercussions too of Alex and the Droogs and society's punishment uh, for their crimes, and Romper Stomper kind of steals the ultraviolence, but it it, mm-hmm. it doesn't really show us any of those things. Yeah, you mentioned Crow's interview earlier, Matt, and and one of the things he said is like, if you believe in the ideology of this, you're either dead or in prison. And mm-hmm. it's not the ideology of this that kills Hando in the film. So that kind of goes against his quote there. Yeah. Um, they're kind of, they're, they're undone by their own stupidity at every turn, yeah. which is, which is, I mean, in a way, I understand that that's, that's the, what the film wants to get across. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah. You always wonder well, whether, um, it's enough when you've shown so much of them being kind of such a sort of force and such a kind of, uh, uh, such a I, I don't know like they're they're very like you say Russell Crowe's character is, is extraordinarily magnetic he's there's it's it's not questioned as to why people would would fall in line behind him it makes total mm-hmm. sense that this group would would coalesce around him around that figure there's always but, a um, charismatic leader isn't there in, in these yeah kinds of, uh, films. Um, um, back to back to this is England for a second that which I think is a superior film uh if you look at bubs the young boy in um mm-hmm. uh, romper stomper he's he's influenced by his elders and he's akin to sean in a way yeah. um and if, if you look at the clothes in the film and the, the girl's hair like the way it's shaved mm-hmm. down one side there's even a shot in romper stomper outside the warehouse where they trick their way in yeah. and they're all lined up outside and it just looked like a still from this is england yeah and uh, yeah. but Back to like the motivation of the racism too. Like Sean's father dies in the Falklands. He has a, a complex kind of rage, which needs a home. He's bullied at school, which just exacerbates it. And then when he is inducted into the gang, like by combo, we, we understand to a degree. It's a bit like Derek and, and the other one. We, we don't agree, but we kind of, we kind of see enough to get it. And we empathize with Sean, which is something we don't do. A lot of in in Romper Stomper. Uh, I hope no one's agreeing with Combo's ethos at that point in the film. But we, Sean's so impressionable, and he's sort of found his outlet. And again, it's kind of a father figure, so it does all tie in from a from a character standpoint. And I missed a lot of that. Although I do agree with you, Dev, that it would have been perhaps too much of an about turn to uh, just have everything be be solved or have a character flip completely. Mm. Um, but yeah, there was a chance to do that, and I did. I did ultimately miss it a little bit. That arc. I've got. I've got something on filmmaker intent. So we we we've, we're saying that we're the film itself was missing that little bit of balance or just a, a even a modicum of reasoning. Because obviously, you, you know, you don't want to reduce these things down to oh, that's the reason why so and so acts this way. But you need something that gives you a lead in. The use of the young. Uh, neo-Nazi in this I found to be deeply manipulative so the way that he he sort of succumbs to the police and we we hold on the shot of him shot in the head dead are you literally positioning us as the audience to sympathize with this group and they've used the kid as the device to do it well I also felt like that didn't work I mean I felt when Bob's was shot it I felt like serves you right because at no point had I been given anything to latch onto, unlike Sean mm. in This Is England. I didn't know him beyond his racist epithets and just general hate. So why would I care when he gets a bullet in the head? It's just, even though it was an attempt to manipulate. I have that scene really down work. as a, and that moment down as a cheap shock. I know we set yeah. him up by getting the gun, but I mean, I don't know what the policy is in Australia, but I don't think they'd shoot him. 
No, it's an assault on precinct thirteen moment. It's like like yeah. when I'm saying that it it plays out like an exploitation film in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah. Which which yeah. um uh, gals, you were saying that uh, the kind of Australian cinema, the the stuff that you'd seen had a much more acidic edge than you'd expected. And I don't know if any of you guys have seen that documentary, um, not quite Hollywood. No. Uh, which was uh, a Mark Hartley documentary. He went on to make the um the very great documentary about Canon films called Electric Boogaloo. Oh yeah. Uh, but uh, his previous film was was uh, it was the wild untold story of Ozploitation. So it's about the history of Australian exploitation films, um, and it makes it it really puts a lot of this into context. The kind of films that that we're talking about because um, there was in the seventies and eighties there was a lot of these, these kind of probably seen as being quite amoral, really shocking, like very rough underground pictures being made um and i think uh the the history of that and the way that kind of um the influences of that filtering their way into australian cinema make a lot more sense than seeing it in the context of of hollywood filmmaking i think if if you think like how how kind of rough films like uh like turkey shoot or um even like the, the original mad max really yeah uh yeah. you know it's it's not it's not moralizing in in a way, it's just um, I think they're expecting that the violence and and how shocking it is, and then how kind of just tawdry and squalid they end up becoming towards the end is supposed to be seen as its own just desserts. I I, I do think Wright, no matter what he will have said, it does enjoy the the violence and the shock factor in this film, and I think that was part of the drive of it, and mm. he seemed happy that when this film premiered in in England and there was picketing outside the Prince Charles Cinema in London and the right. rumours were it was actually organised picketing <laughs> but regardless I, I do feel like because you know there was controversy on the film here as well down with this sort of thing careful now <laughs> and I do think there's a bit of that within it I've just got one more that I thought yeah. was uh, an, another shocking scene uh, which was Gabe's seizure um, it, it was yeah. similar, but but I still didn't care enough about her. I mean, yes, we find out Martin, you know, the Aussie Poundland Philip Baker Hall <laughs> is her father, Jeez. and has, that is who he looked like. <laughs> <laughs> and he's he's touched her inappropriately, but um, you know, not only in the earlier scene, but we also assume throughout her life. Uh, but she still consistently displays a lack of decency and morality. Mm. She's kind of guilty by association she tolerates them all she sticks by them she cooks for them and you know she endures hando's abuse of her and and his intolerance of others and davy at one point aims his fingers like a gun at her gay brother's picture and instead of you know chastising him for it she sells him out and just just laughs along with him so there's really not that much to latch onto with gabe either that was another opportunity to get me a little bit more involved I do think, uh, this is going to bring me into my next kind of idea of the film. I do think Gabe is the most attachable uh, character, though, because I, I hear what you're saying, but it, I've kind of written notes and trying to get into the head of Gabrielle that w this is the character where we completely understand her background. We, we get the opening where she's in uh, some sort of abusive <clears throat> relationship, she's called a father to bail her out and help her. 
because mm. she knows she knows her father will do that, and her father has had an abusive history with her, with the hand on her chest that, that we understand. And I think that Gabe is a character that is, um, she's not well mentally, and she has epileptic fits anyway, but she. She's definitely become a destructive person because of her past, but I understand that through the storytelling and through the character development. Because, and finally, we have a character where we we kind of fully understand why she is who she is. So, I know what you mean, but I do kind of latch onto a bit of a, a point of interest rather than. I, I can't really be interested in Hando, who adores Mein yeah. Kampf and is a complete, you know, racist. Whereas Do you Gabe, think it's, it's I think like, she's, I think she's actually got a bit of manipulation about, and she knows she's playing these guys at the same time, which I kind of find uh-huh. interesting as well. Do, do you think it's a, a kind of like in the audition podcast we talked about Asami's um, living out her her abuse in a in a safe environment? Uh, so sometimes if you're abused, you may be somehow involved in that kind of world, and and it's a safe way to reenact what had happened to her with other people being abused perhaps. So uh, I hear that too. Like what, at least she has a semblance of a, a backstory that mm-hmm. justifies some of her behavior. So, yeah. So Gally, I just want to consider this then. I want to ask you first, can we read, <laughs> just going completely off kilter here. Can we read this film as some sort of Shakespearean tragedy for Hando and a love story between Davy and Gabe? Oh, I think that's, that's part of the intention. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, we, not to, not to go to more lighter times, but when we discussed the dagger in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, well, it's, yes, it's that's Mac- my next it's, point. It's a Macbethian, uh, tool, isn't it? Hando pays yeah. for the, the knife and it's the knife that, the Hitler, the youth knife that ends up, um, ends up killing him. So that in itself felt Shakespearean. And you mentioned it before when he reads Mein Kampf. He reads it in such a way that feels like he's reading poetry. Uh, and, yeah. and, and the way that Gabe looks at him during that scene. And mm. again, for more imp- impressionable audience members, they might also be listening thinking, yeah, that, that strikes a chord with the reality that I'm living. I hope they're not. My cat. You know, it's about war, isn't it? <laughs> this book was written by Adolf Hitler. Turned into a joke by a lot of people who don't want to know Hitler's view of the world. Simply about the ongoing struggle of the white race and the enemies it faces. If you don't know who the enemy is, you can't win the war. Listen. All the noble cultures of the past declined because the purity and vigor of the originally creative race faded out. They were compromised by the seed of lesser races. They were attracted to the works of the superior men. The undeniable reason for their decline was, then, due to a kind of racial blood poisoning. Racial blood must, then, be preserved in its purity at all costs. It's an interesting moment, though, when he does read her that. I think it's the same scene. And she talks about reincarnation. I think Crow does a really good job of displaying a face, facial expression that's like, the fuck is she talking about? 
Um, cause I do, I do consider, mm. <laughs> I do consider Hando as a character quite smart and quite educated. You know, he, he, um, corrects someone when they, uh, incorrectly uh, name the capital city of where these people are from. Um, cause did, does he correct them and say, um, it's Singapore, oh, isn't it? Singapore, they they say it? Singapore, yeah. And he corrects them. And w- when the Hitler Youth knife is brought to them, he you know, he's fully onto it, like that's cheap metal. That's because blah blah blah. You know, um, I do think there's uh, that's the maybe the only development really get of Hando, but I quite like those little moments. Um, and you you, you get do, do you? Uh, I couldn't understand. You said that, like, Gabe responding to him talking about Mein Kampf. It's quite odd to... She, we don't believe that she's got any history in this kind of neo-Nazism or racism, do we? But she goes straight maybe into she it. Just, maybe she just finds it kind of thrilling to hear something mm, so okay. kind of illicit, you know, like... Uh, uh, and and the, his, like you said, his reading of it is is really powerful. But, yes, um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think, yeah, she's kind of hypnotized. But, um, it was, I, I think I, I definitely get what you're saying about it being like a, you know, a, a Shakespearean tragedy. Mm-hmm. I, I saw it more as a, a love story between, uh, Hando and Davy and that Gabe is, is the kind of agent of chaos that comes between them. And, and, and that's their undoing really, isn't it? That they both fall for a, um, but she herself as a character, as much as her performance is, is, is great and and very um uh electric and and uh as a character she is sort of a cipher a little i mean we we know bits and pieces about her, but you say her, her motivations and and what she's actually thinking at any time are, are clouded largely clouded by the fact that she herself is is so kind of emotionally confused and 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 so kind of uh developmentally stunted that by the end of the film she just her reaction to overhearing uh that she's going to be rejected or that she feels like she might be rejected is to set fire to their car and everything they have and you know the the very last vestiges of they've been pared down and pared at the start they have you know this big garage that they all stay in and and there's a huge gang of them and they have their big parties and stuff and then they just get reduced and shrunk and then they have to break into a second place to stay and and it's you know they there's you see them framed a lot in that second garage as if they're very small and just a little uh a group of them kind of in the distance and then eventually you know you lose the gang as well so you're left with just davy and hando and 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 gabe and their one little car with whatever possessions they could shove in it in the last minute and then she destroys that as well um yeah and structurally it's it's really interesting and really powerful i wasn't expecting it to go that way i think you mentioned at this at the start patrick that like yeah i expected there to be a a a relatively straightforward um conclusion of this kind of gang war that they'd had and it just drops off yeah it's kind of it's kind of surprising isn't it because i thought yeah but just to talk about gabe uh, played by jacqueline mckenzie everyone talks about Russell Crowe in this film and how like impressive and, you know, screen presence undeniable in this film. But I think she's great in this film. I think her performance, these are very young actors and they've not done much, but she has certain bits in it. I was kind of wowed by that. There's, 
the, the, the brawl sequence with the Vietnamese at the back of the pub. And she comes along and, uh, I think she says, she has the courage to say to Handa, I, th- I think he's had enough now. And he encourages her. And she has this moment when she figures that she's thinking what to do. And she kicks the Vietnamese Australian guy on the floor. I, I, th- I think she's very good in that scene. And I don't know, it can't be easy playing, uh, you know, reenacting having a fit. But her insecurity and the kind of timidness, juxtaposed by how kind of confident she can be ringing the police setting the car on fire at the end i think she i think she's very good in this film jeffrey wright didn't look out but it's a relatively low budget film and sometimes Mm. you could argue when you see these films that are a little bit more independent you might get the odd uh creaky performance but i think the three principles all do a magnificent job Uh, to give credit to the film their performances in what little has been sort of afforded them especially in Davy you know most of his performances in looks and he he's almost like a a, the actor David Pollock which I'm sure Matt you've got some history on on what unfortunately happened to him but he's like his look he's he's like an empathy machine like just despite him right at the beginning of the film and I never forgot it that the first thing we see him do is is literally kick the shit out of uh, a, a young uh, a young lad who's done nothing wrong throughout the film they frame him in a way that that means that he is sort of the emotional part of the group he's the one who seems to be more connected to humanity whereas hando is mm-hmm. is very it's almost primal isn't it he's like a he you compare it to like an old school bully who's just uh, everyone everyone gravitates towards because um you know he's the one who's going to protect you and he'll he'll get you through this um, but I thought all three principles were fantastic, Patrick. I totally agree. And I can't believe she's in Deep Blue Sea. Yeah. That one, that one couldn't uh, believe it when I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. she's in wow. Deep Blue Sea. I think, uh, I think she's in the new TV series of Romper Stomper as well, actually. Uh, so she's going back right. to it, which is interesting. There's, uh, there's another issue with the arcs. I think Davy and, um, and Russell Crowe's character have kind of a shared, uh, shared, uh, lead really in, in a strange way. Like Davy has, more of an arc and even though it's a very slight one mm-hmm. with an abrupt kind of unearned turn at the end he he kind of only took those badges off because he doesn't want to upset his daft grandma because you know it's her it's her place he's staying at you know he still has third right tattoos and i i don't care that his dad I'm gave him a matchbox collection yeah and you've already lost me by that point so like the issue is that he's not really the lead and he, he's like one of two leads and it kind of splits the stakes. So it means that neither of them are kind of explored sufficiently. Like Hando's arc, I think, is lacking. Uh, in terms of writing, I like the Shakespeare reference because you've made me see it in a completely different way. Like I think there's some poetic justice 101 yeah. in terms of the writing with, with the Hitler youth knife and uh, being used to kill Hando. But it, it was a bit too little too late, I think. And and I did find Crow's death like unintentionally funny although I, I still didn't laugh at it uh, I, it was it was kind of uh, but back to the Shakespeare thing there was an interesting thing I was watching about the evil dead the other day Sam Raimi was defending it on a, on a UK TV show and it made me think about the censorship that was that was going on and like this idea of video nasties and I think I'm more I'm, I'm much happier having an evil dead in the world than I am a romper stomper I think it's like there, there's a world of difference between Ash and and the evil dead and the, the events that they're depicting here 
Like, I think all films could be potentially dangerous in the wrong hands, like a book or a computer game. And, and Sam Raimi was talking about Shakespeare and uh, referencing back to the violence in, in those stories. And, and the people at the time, no doubt, expressed concern about that. But, uh, you know, unfortunately here, there's a couple of little things like neo-Nazi groups embracing the soundtrack and actually using it. Mm. Yes. Like that, which is a bit troublesome. I thought we were going to talk about the music uh, at some point because yeah. those songs are a difficult choice to make. And I, I wrote a note down, uh, just, just for the listeners, if you've not seen the film, there's a lot of um, neo-Nazi punk in the film. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we can... I'm just going to... If you want to cut this out, Gally, you can, but I'm just going to read out like some of the lyrics just to give an idea. Because there's skinhead. Skinhead is a repeated lyric, and smack him if he's yellow, smack him if he's black. And these songs, you know, it, it does feel like a little bit of a glorification when they're having that house party um, at the beginning of the film because they're all enjoying themselves together and it, it does feel uncomfortable. Now, whether that's an intentional discomfort and a good thing to show you that this is an uncomfortable thing that is, mm. and you're smart enough to understand that this is wrong, this is not good. And I tried to figure out, you know, when we get the classical music that you mentioned earlier, Matt, had the music, yeah. had the punk kind of music subsided by then? Is there a an artistic thing that we get the music at the beginning, but it fades out towards the end because they are fading? Mm. But I may be reading too much into it. Well, one, one of my least favorite moments was that kind of heroic music cue as they're fleeing that from the Vietnamese mob. Mm. And I just didn't appreciate sure, it all. It, yeah. it was totally misjudged and like tonally really inappropriate for that scene and in a film that glamour that could be accused of glamorizing this stuff you know it wasn't really a surprise but that that just felt you know very odd to go that route with mm. with that with that heroic musical score at that point so whenever you depict anything on the big screen you're gonna instantly glamorize it to some degree you, you can't get round that mm. but the music i found it was i was exactly like you patrick I, I stopped listening sort of consciously to the lyrics because the melodies themselves were actually really catchy. And I understood the, why Jeff yeah, they are, would yeah. do that. I, I don't understand why you would do that in the scene when they're partying. But then when, when he uses it for the battle scenes, then it starts to be like, well, hold on, wait a minute. What are we, what are we suggesting here? Are we suggesting that we are definitely on? And this is the problem. The film kind of pivots into always being on in, from the perspective of the skinheads. Therefore, our allegiances, our sympathies are, you know, we should be, what, supporting them? And the Vietnamese and the Australians never get, the, you never get the other sides. Therefore, it's an inherently manipulative. And the film, when, when David Stratton, the, the critic said, no star because um, he was worried about it being dangerous. Well, how many examples in cinema have we seen of people not watching the film right or watching a character correctly. I'm I'm guilty of it myself. I'm currently watching uh, Mad Men uh, from season one onwards, and I really like Don Draper, despite him being an utter narcissist and a and a bit of a dickhead. But that that being when you follow a character, and in this film, Hando and the group, you can easily see why someone would watch this and be seduced by him and the world and completely misread the filmmaking intention. I think there's another thing to back that up with what you said, Gally, is we know all the neo-Nazis' names and it's quite easy to follow them. 
I don't know any of the Vietnamese characters' names. Mm. And we do have an important character in there. There's the guy who really wants to rally. Why, why don't we establish a, a name, a, a, a memorable character? Because they do defeat the neo-Nazis. And, I, yeah, I was a bit annoyed at that. And Patrick, it's the I way think, that we, uh, we learn Hando's name. It's done on a title, like a Reservoir Dogs, yeah, a Mr. Yeah. Brown. A Mr. It's like, well, hold on, wait a minute. We are putting these people up on a pedestal a little bit. Um, so I, I had a, I had an issue with that. I, I, I was going to say that exactly that, which is that the, the representation of the Vietnamese it, it is another way of kind of slightly, whether it's just to kind of, to stick to the sort of verisimilitude of the picture that they wanted, which is that they wanted this picture to be like a hot house environment where you're stuck with this group of neo-Nazis. But what that means is that you can end up seeing the world exactly as they see it. And I don't think that the the identification that the film puts you in is contextualized enough to make it feel as uncomfortable as it should or or could, depending on on your on your perspective. Because that scene where they're where they're uh, you know when they they pick, they pull the kids out of the back of the pub and they're and they're beating them basically to death, and then the 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 reinforcements of the the Vietnamese Amer- uh, Australian um, guys coming in that is shot. And executed like a like a scrappy low budget Hong Kong action film, which again makes sense because there is a lot of Hong Kong film influence in Australia because it's a one of the closer. Um, uh, if you notice, most of the people who are white in Jackie Chan films are Australian rather than Americans, just because it's 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 far closer, so they have closer ties. But what you end up with yeah. there is then these are the faceless hordes of villains here to overwhelm. Mm-hmm. your group there's it's thousands like, uh, of them they kept saying there's thousands yeah. of them and and it really does look on... like that and they, and they are they're anonymous uh, uh henchmen there to either mm-hmm. you know beat people up and when they beat them up they swarm around them or they're there to just get like dispatched i mean you can see you're more heroic you're more kind of uh your your higher level of the gang will sometimes like uh, there's a point where hando just turns around and just handily takes down like three or four guys in a row and 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 skips off and you can end up then with with I mean, visually audiences are trained to understand certain types of media in certain ways and when you have a small group of people who whom you know like you say we know their names we know who they are we spent time with them and then you have a large group of completely anonymous people who you've been kind of seen as othering you naturally when you when you have the barrier of subtitles it's a, it's a small thing but it's just it's it's in there subconsciously that you're not going to identify the same way with somebody where you have to read. It's a really what interesting point because if they were speaking no English, context. and we establish that these are community people, it's completely different, isn't it? Yeah, and and you know maybe it should be like you know realistically it should be that you do get, but I think this comes down to an issue of um of representation and representation behind and in front of the camera, uh, which is a thing that people have been pushing for a lot recently and. Sometimes it gets uh, uh, a bit of a bad rep where people will say it's, like it's box ticking or that it's like, um, you know, if if people are going to be kind of endemically kind of shitty racist about it, they'll say it's like affirmative action hiring. But what it really means is that if you only have these very singular viewpoints and you don't have people from, I mean, what this film never kind of shows you outside of that very shocking opening scene is what does it feel like to live in a community whereby you are made to feel unsafe to the point that you might just be killed for existing in this place that like abject terror that people have to live with 
doesn't get represented because the filmmakers have never understood it. The filmmakers are, are, are more naturally inclined towards their, their identification as terrible as it would be, would probably filter slightly more towards the gang. So you end up with, I think that's maybe what's causing such a kind of tonal confusion for us. I, I did resent that like the resilience and the strength of the Vietnamese was used to kind of portray the Nazis as the ones who were trapped. It's like the ones who were maligned and put upon. Yeah. Uh, and, and like they're portrayed as martyrs for a cause and they're the rats in a cage. I think they say, uh, you know, it's, it's all bullshit. They're, they're in a cage. If they're, if they are in a cage, it's because they put themselves there. And sure, the, the Vietnamese gang is violent at some points, but it's a mob that's motivated by retribution and to protect the innocent. And, uh, I think there's another cheap shot at the, at the Vietnamese where they, the boys refer to, uh, Suvlaki as greasy shit. And uh, it, that felt like a cheap move to paint them as a, just a little bit racist too, you know, just to soften the effect of mm. what Hando and the others were doing. So mm. I really didn't appreciate that either. That felt a little bit, a little bit cheap. But that's that's a great point, Devlin. I, I agree. I tell you what I want to do, guys. Um, um, we've we've kind of uh, we've dogpiled a little bit, but I think we've done it in an eloquent way, and we've actually articulated why we felt this way watching the film. But just purely from a technical standpoint. I did find, I, I found, you know, the things that Patrick, you said your father really reacted to. I thought the way it was shot, those particular scenes was brutal. And it was interesting how the two characters, the, the female characters that leave the group don't, won't abide by guns, but how much more effective is it and how much more brutal and kind of hard to watch is it when you see fisticuffs and the way that they shoot it in this kind of semi-documentarian way where the camera, you know, you could argue it's a kind of Paul Greengrass effect, but it, it really does get under the skin. I do like the way it's shot, Gally. It is frantic and yeah. chaos. I, I've been quite um, negative, so I've got some positives on the visuals, actually. I think from the outset, uh, it's visually arresting. But for me, it's sort of sadly peaked in that opening scene under the bridge where it has a great moving camera and this high frame rate slow-mo stuff. And there's this really haunting sound design with low rumbles in the background. Yeah. And uh, it kind of, it's quite narish, the the musical opening, isn't it? It's very, uh, like, it reminded me of um, The Untouchables a little bit. A a little later, we get more of those drenched kind of blues, Mm -hmm. you know, a bluish hue. And uh, <laughs> I like that Australia, when they're on the beach, Matt, as well, I like that it's raining and it's dreary. You know, it's, it does add to the, the film. Well, it's a side of, it's a, it's a, it's a, an element in Australian cinema that you don't normally see, which is rain. And, and the way that they shoot the, the cityscape, it's very, it's muted, isn't it? It's it, it, almost oppressive in the way that it's shot. Um, but I guess, I guess some of the ending, maybe it peaks, Matt, because, you know, this isn't a studio lead film necessarily i wonder if they just i wonder if they ran out ran out of money well they yeah. they were shooting on short ends apparently. oh right yeah. wow i haven't heard i haven't heard short ends since <laughs> like 2007 yeah no, they, they, <laughs> they explain really short ends dev to anyone listening who yeah sure so i mean basically everything we ever shot was mostly on short ends uh, we would have had a few cans of new film but generally speaking yeah it's that uh, uh film productions would usually use larger rolls of film uh, probably a thousand feet, I guess. Although I don't know, that was what we used to get in the 16 mil realm. I don't know what they were shooting on 35. Yeah. But, um, larger film productions would have more budget for film stock. And what they would do is if they'd reached the end of a filming day and they still had quite a lot of film stock left, 
they would uh, 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 recan it, seal it, and then they would refrigerate it for use later. Uh, oftentimes, films would have excess short ends that were just never really useful for them. You know, maybe you would only have a few minutes of shooting time on a on a reel. So mm. you would uh, uh, oftentimes films would would just sell them. I know that uh, the film that uh, myself and uh, what Gally and Patrick produced uh, and directed and that I worked on in in second year at film school was all shot on short ends, which uh, our friend Luke got from uh, uh, A Touch of Frost, I believe. No, it wasn't A Touch of Frost. It was um, he was doing a submarine drama, wasn't he? It was Ghost Boat. <laughs> ghost Boat, that was it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <Ghost Boat. laughs> it was from Ghost Boat. So yeah, we used to shoot on a lot of short ends, and it's a it's a very uh, cheap way of making film, and and what also possibly contributed to the look of the film is that you can't always guarantee that uh, the stock is yeah. going to exactly match. Yeah, you get different looks, don't you? It's like yeah. a collage. Of- I remember um, just to interject, I remember ringing Luke when we got the rushes back. And I thought I was going to have a bit of fun with him. He, he'll tell you this because he hated me. I was like, yeah, some of it's a bit dark, mate. Uh, <laughs> and he, he kept me slapped around the, sat around the head when he saw it. Like, I was scared shitless. It's like, no, no, it's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it, it does peak quite early, but the, later there's some upside down cameras and some, some crazy stuff going on, like the police raid in, on the warehouse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a fervent kind of energy to it. The cameras are whizzing around for no apparent reason. But, you know, the, the, there's not a lot of substance, but, the, you know, at least it has some, uh, some you know, some camera movement. And so yeah, the, 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 the visuals are really kind of uh, arresting at times. I like the way they shoot the warehouse as well. They make mm. every inch of the space. There's a shot when mm. Bubs comes to get Davy and Hando's in the background. I really like the framing of that. And there's also an interesting mm-hmm. kind of way that you fr- um, I was trying to read into it myself. But when I think it's. Gabe's had her epileptic fit, uh, or seizure, excuse me, and she's on the bed and she's, she's framed in one half by a kind of Thai, uh, blanket thing, a drape, while Hando's exposed on the right hand side. And there was a, I, I think there must have been an idea there of the framing. And I thought it was interesting that they're amongst foreign, uh, paraphernalia, so to speak. And, yeah. And there was another, I have to check my notes, excuse me. There was something else I quite like the, the framing of. Um, mm, just, just while Patrick finds it, the, did you notice the amount of licking? Is that how they kiss in Australia? I think it's a punk thing. I think it's, it's a neo-Nazi punk, punk, punk thing. thing. I think it's the... I didn't see that on Neighbours or Home <laughs> <laughs> I think we all agree the brawl is quite impressive and kind of... Oh yeah. It does stay with you, the brawl section. But I thought, um, just to go along with the kind of, naturalistic filmmaking way there's a couple of sex scenes in it that are it it's mm. kind of sometimes sex scenes i i don't see they have a place in a film but in this uh, i i did see it with hando and um gabe into cut with a party but more importantly um davy and gabe when they when they finally come together because we you mentioned it earlier i just want to talk about pollock for a bit here Pollock does a lot with just a look, doesn't he, Galley? And oh, he really does. Understand these looks that yes, he's under Hando, he's in Hando's shadow, and but he's really enamoured by Gabe, and he's too scared to kind of make a move. And Gabe finally he finally beds her, so to speak, and they they come together. But that um, apparently they they were a couple in real life um, at the time 
which really helped with their sex scene. And rumours are they actually did have sex on set. If you look closely, uh, you do see Davy's erect penis possibly going in. And um, I, I do like, I think Pollock's very good. Sadly, though, he... He took his own life, didn't he? The the year before it was even released. Shortly after, yeah. He, During yeah, the twenty three. God, I think he was facing prison and couldn't take it. But and Russell Crowe wrote them a song in two thousand and one called "The Night That Davy Hit the Train." Um, for anyone who wants to refer to it, there. That's really sad, isn't it? I mean, because everyone in this in this film was was somewhat unknowns outside of Russell Crowe, who had done uh, a couple of features and some TV. So um, he was clearly the big star, and I believe he had um, uh, a say in the casting. He did, yeah. Um, he wanted to make a gang, didn't he? And, and yeah, make it kind of the brotherhood between them. Um, which meant that Jacqueline McKenzie had to basically pass pass muster with him, and and she'd never—I don't believe she'd ever acted uh, she, in in film. She was a, th- a theatre actor, uh, and he had to go see her in. She was she was in a play, and uh, she. Uh, was rehearsing the play and she skipped out on rehearsals to um, audition for the film. And then in order for, for her to get kind of the okay that Russell Crowe had to go and see her in the play. But um, Daniel Pollock was a, another one. He was a kind of young sort of local actor, but apparently he was already very troubled when they cast him. Um, uh, problems with, with substance abuse issues and, and, and things like um, from what I read in, in retrospective uh, articles with um, with Jeffrey Wright, uh, he kind of seems to be intimating that he sort of understood that he was he was a very troubled young man, nonetheless. Um, so, um, uh, I, I guess yeah, that's it's it's a real kind of it's just a real tragic situation in general because he was uh, a real raw nerve in the film. Mm-hmm. I love I love it when an actor can speak another language as well, and even the the brief moment speaking German is very impressive to me. Mm. Yeah, I, I will say this, Patrick, just to go back to your you saying how effective the sex scenes were in this. I did I had a bit of a problem with the first one with Hando and Gabe, and and the reason being is I found it to be just in the edit. I think they just they cut. They intercut too many times because oh, okay. it never it, it never lo- it never went out of my head that this is a character that's that we've that they've inferred as has suffered sexual abuse and here we are watching a um, have sex with Hando in a kind of rough raw I, manner. I still kind and of I'm, saw that those her becoming I'm not quite entirely sure. Yeah, mm. I suppose so. But I guess I guess in her performance, I couldn't not to say that I needed her to tell me, but it, it ne- I never really understood fully knew whether or not it was like she was enjoying it do you know what i mean and i just kind of maybe it was just the film itself it was compiled on with other issues that i'd had where i was like oh this feels a bit icky and gratuitous like i get it they're having sex like do we need to keep cutting back and forth back and forth back and Mm -hmm. forth but that's you know an interesting uh interview with russell crowe a few years ago i think it was around the time where the me too movement was um really gaining momentum and it was he I don't know whether he was getting an award or some description, but it's very, if you've not seen it, it's an odd interview where he refers back to that sex scene and he says, and he said, when I was sodomizing Jacqueline McKenzie, <laughs> and it, it's, his wording is so strange in it, um, but he talks about how 
and he goes on to talk about how you've got to be careful in those situations and wear the appropriate stuff and be respectful of each other. Um, but when I'm sodomizing her, it's not a good opening line, really. Well, I know, I Matt, I um, I'm not saying that we've spoke before, but I got a sense that you you're not a big not a big RC fan. <laughs> no, I, I think he he did leap off the screen. I don't think we can we can doubt that. Um, I think that there's a scene where he's kind of hating on everything in fingerless gloves. You know, he hates pasta, he hates Japanese cars, he hates braiding hair. And, uh, you know, and then I, I don't think he's amazing in the film. I, I do think my favorite role of his is still LA Confidential. We've, uh, you know, you can tune into our podcast on that to hear more positive things on, on Russell Crowe, perhaps. But, um, I don't know how much he has to work with here script wise, but he, he's an undeniable presence. Uh, I think he turns in a capable performance and, and it showed a lot of promise at the beginning of his career and it got the foot in the door for, for, for better work in the years that, that followed. But I, I do still dislike him. You know, he's, he's quite a primitive man, isn't he? He's a bit of a thug. And I, I think he'd be pulling his alpha male stuff on set. You know, we've talked about Tom Hardy a little bit. Like, I, I think he's that breed of actor. I think it would be a real turnoff for me if I were, if I had to direct him. Mm. And I, I imagine he must have lost some work because of it. And you know, I saw him recently on Howard Stern. And he discussed turning down the Aragorn role in Lord of the Rings, oh, which cost him, uh, yeah, it cost him millions because they offered him a very generous slice of the back end. And uh, according to Crow, he felt that Peter Jackson didn't want him and was only meeting with him to appease the studio who, you know, who had selected several actors for him to talk to. You know, and I get the impression he'd steamroller someone like Peter Jackson. And it wouldn't be a great match, but seemingly someone like Ridley Scott can handle him. So, uh, yeah, he's hit, hit and miss for me, but as a, as a personality, I, I can, I could do without him, actually. He's a very yeah. committed actor and he makes a point of it, doesn't he? Uh, you know, he wears his heart on his sleeve, so to speak, from what I've seen. seen. Did you see the interview he had? Although <laughs> it doesn't always work. Did you see the interview he had where he stormed out of because people were someone, I can't remember who it was was questioning his accent in Robin Hood. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you got dead ears, you play mate. Robin you got Hood, dead ears. You got dead ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. I, I actually, but everyone gets that. Costner got that too. It's just part of the job. Isn't it? I actually did a week on Robin Hood and there was an, it was kind of night shoots and there was this big village scene at the foot of the French castle. And, um, uh, oh god, it was mad. I had to, I had to mark um, a board for the camera by Russell Crowe's face, and I was like, "Fuck it!" No, on my first day, I was shitting myself. But he, he was. Cool. Did you do a very quiet clap? Did yeah, you, you have to do, do a soft clap. Um, yeah, yeah, soft. And but one night, one of the uh, balloons, one of the light balloons, um, went down. I don't know whether it was a generator or there was an electrical problem. We were stood down for ages, but all the cast stayed on set. You've got like Kevin Durant and Scott Grimes. And Russell Crowe literally did a David Brent moment of go get the go get the guitar. <laughs> and, we, <laughs> and on set, but it was fantastic. Surrounded by hundreds of extras, uh, sporting artists, excuse me, and the cast because they're Russell Crowe's got his own band, and I think they're part of these kind of it, this idea that you spoke about, Matt, with with 
um, Romper Stomper, and he spoke about in interviews of creating a kind of brotherhood between them and a gang and keeping them together and training them together. I think he did the same on Robin Hood, and he had a, a very good thing. But he he played a song, like a ballad song. I'll never forget. I don't remember what the song was because I was too busy looking at his face. His eyes were closed, just playing the guitar and singing softly <laughs> into the night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which we all I mean it was great it was great but then Scott yeah, Grimes uh, then Scott Grimes stepped up with uh, Man in the Mirror Michael Jackson's song <laughs> <laughs> and it was it became very a very surreal hour yeah. of uh, work oh dear That's well I, always have that guitar handy yeah I think um, I'd love to see uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone in the in a room with Russell Crowe after they lampooned him so well on South Park. I think that's yeah. that's unfortunately that's my yeah. vision of him, which is you know singing and fighting round the world with his boat tagger. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like somebody's up for a fight. <laughs> I guess, guys, I think that might very well be um, that might be it for our discussion on on Romper Stomper. So. I'll uh, I'll ask the uh, the pertinent questions, and uh, I guess Patrick, I'll start with you, uh, seeming as you hadn't seen it, okay. and it was very much a recommend from your father. Um, yeah, final thoughts well, on I'm Romper not used Stomper. to leading, but yeah, no, no, yeah, but so final thoughts on Romper Stomper, and would you recommend it to our listeners? My final thoughts, in mainly, well, my thoughts right now are just I'm, I've really enjoyed our conversation today because I was very. I was keen to watch something that I hadn't seen before as a throwback in a loose terms. And I'm glad that none of us has seen it before. So we could all get the fresh perspective at the same time. And I, I I'm glad that we largely seem to agree on the problematic thematics of the film. Um, the ambiguous morals that don't quite, well, they don't work. It's not, not don't quite. Um, I am there is a lasting impression of the performances for me uh, from from all three leads, um, which I, I, I was very impressed with. You can see why this is quite a good project for young actors at the time that they can get their teeth stuck into and something quite raw and uh, new and shocking at the time. You can see why Crow went on. You know, there's bits of Bud White in this performance, in this intensity. Um, it it was an uncomfortable watch, um, and I, it's not it's not the uncomfortable kind of with a good payoff that you'd expect from mainstream cinema. So um, this is exploitative, as Davlin has said, and doesn't always work for me at all it works in a visual sense i quite i i did think galley spoke about the structure of the story which i do think works because i thought it was going to go one way and it didn't so it's quite challenging that way challenging on the on the uh, not just the storytelling way but in the morals it's a hard film to recommend but I don't know whether you shouldn't discourage watching something um, purely because of, of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What, the subject matter? <sighs> Sorry. Well, sort of subject matter, yeah. Um, because 
Russell Crowe purist, you want to see this performance and see the performance on there. But you've got to be smart if you watch this. You've got to be, you've got to understand that this is wrong where the film doesn't always shed light on that, which is, is a problem as we've discussed. Um, Matt, I'll go to you next, please. Okay. Well, I don't want to rehash some things I've already said, but, uh, I think it made all the real girls look like a fun romp. This one, it, it was made the same year as as Reservoir Dogs in '92, and and like they're very different films. But I think yeah, I think one point one, one point two million dollars. I tried to do a a rough estimate. Um, like, I think one has confidence and a vision and composure, uh, and and the other one, uh, Romper Stomper, feels a little rushed and and scattered and and a bit uneven. Uh, and I don't know if it knows what it is exactly. I think it seems powerful, but there's really, there's not too much to occupy the mind after the credits roll. I didn't find too much to decipher. Um, uh, I, and I, I don't want to be sanctimonious, but it, it, I found it to be quite ugly and almost a mean spirited film. Uh, that the, the charged beliefs of the skinheads kind of run unopposed. Uh, there's, we've mentioned before, there's not much of a counter argument to their worldview. And, uh, unlike similar films, there's not much of an arc or a lesson learned. Of course, there doesn't have to be. Uh, I, I felt a bit weird, like taking a Mary Whitehouse kind of a high horse stance on something, but I do think there's a slightly potentially dangerous aspect to, to the film. Uh, because it's serious stuff in, in quite clumsy hands. And, uh, I know it's not a cool stance to take, but I honestly felt that way. And I always try to be as honest as possible on these, on these pods. Um, so, um, what you end up with is, is a film that, that seemingly condones a lot of the stuff that, that happens in it. And, and I, I know that a film about racists isn't necessarily a racist film. It's usually quite the opposite, but this one was a little bit too ambiguous for its own good. Um, you know, I don't know if Jeffrey Wright controlled the film to the degree that people are giving him credit for. And I don't know if he considered the potential repercussions of, uh, you know, of what he did as a, as a filmmaker here. I think he shirks a lot of responsibilities. Um, I, I think some impressionable youths could find solace in Romper Stomper and, and that's a bit worrying, but I, I'll continue to argue against censorship all day long because you can't, you can't edit anything out of this film that, that would, you can't make a cut that is going to change anything because it's an overall attitude. So um, it's true, though, that anything can be misconstrued, you know, a book or a, or a computer game or, or anything. So I think that there's an argument as to, to how much faith you have in the world. Like the, the people who are going to be watching this, can they cope with it? Can they can they deal with it and not act out any of the things that they see? And I think for the most part, people will, you know, the world is still here. Everything is still okay although we do still have racism in spite of what um russell crowe says uh, it, it did throw a cat amongst the pigeons uh, because the race issues were clearly all, already there in australia and just ready to boil over and it's it's certainly didn't cause them but i'm not sure it helped matters by drawing attention to them in, in such an inflammatory way um yeah so i i can't recommend this one i think films with this kind of content need to be pitched just right and I think Romper Stomper falls short of it. Um, but if anyone's interested in the subject matter and, and wants it done 
a little bit better in my eyes. I'd, I'd recommend the, you know, Made in Britain with a young Tim Roth or American History X or, or the brilliant This Is England. Uh, I think you'll find a bit more talent there and a bit more humour and satisfying character arcs. And, uh, you know, not every film needs to have a message, but um, I, I did find this one lacking a... Um, a perspective and a filmmaker point of view that could have softened some of the things that they said um, with the film. But, and there's, there's one more quote from David Anson's Newsweek, which is quite harsh. Uh, I don't know if we want to keep this in. Uh, it's all too clear that Wright is a lot more interested in the kinetic kick of cinematic violence and the photogenic posturings of his brooding thugs than he is in illuminating their sorry souls or exploring the social conditions behind their nihilistic rage. Once the shock value rubs off, this hyped-up movie reveals itself to be as empty as the desperate boys it pretends to explore. So that one's that's David Anson, not me, but it was close to echoing some of the feelings I had about the film. So I'll uh, pass over to Devlin next. Just, just quickly, Matt, um, I kind of agree with that quote. Uh, that's a good one, thank you. But also, I'm quite very glad I got this review, uh, this film to make you swear in a review. So uh, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm glad too. with that. Well, it had to happen soon. Right? <laughs> there you go. How about you, Devlin? How did you feel? That, uh, yeah, that last paragraph, the, the, the last quote that you just gave out, um, is, is really interesting. That kind of, that's what happens, I guess, when you get professional film reviewers. They can cut something <laughs> down in two good. paragraphs. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to say it because I thought, well, that just eclipses anything yeah. I think. But yeah, it's, it's, a um, good one. it's, uh, I, I would, I, I wouldn't say that I'm entirely in that camp, but I totally empathize with what mm. he's saying there. And, and I can see where he's coming from. I, I did find things about the film interesting, but like I said, I really did struggle to get, to get on board with it. And, um, I say this is somebody who, you know, likes a lot of music and films that could be considered to be, you know, uh, kind of pointless and nihilistic. I mean, I have more than one album by a band called Pig Destroyer. And I understand this idea of like this sort of cathartic rage sometimes and that sometimes you just want to, you know, engage in something that's, that's, that's maybe kind of a bit grotesque for its own sake. Uh, the, the sort of, um, uh, like you were saying about, uh, uh, growing up, especially growing up in smaller towns, sometimes you just want to kind of start a, a, a little fire just to see what happens because maybe you're a little bored a little sheltered or uh, uh and that kind of that impulse kind of leads into what i was saying earlier i was being a bit flippant about it but i think it's true that certainly i don't know if you guys went through the same thing but there's a a maturation process that you go through where you get into these films that are you know the the pantheon of edgy films and we've kind of mentioned a lot of them today which is american mm -hmm. history x is one of them uh, uh, I remember Requiem for a Dream being one of them, which at the time everyone felt was very poetic and important and is actually just a kind of over-caffeinated, depressed fest, but with an admittedly really good soundtrack. Um, and there's, there's, there's others and it's, it's a way of like you, you push and you test at your boundaries and you see what you can and can't cope with and you see what you kind of, you try and open your, your mind up and your, your viewpoint up to things beyond what you've already experienced and, um, as, as certainly, uh, with how much of this kind of cinema skews extremely male and extremely white, you end up with, like I said, just quite narrow bands at times. Like 
uh, uh, stuff like American History X and, and Fight Club, which was also mentioned, which is another big touchstone for a lot of people, which is mm. like a kind of a rage against the machine adolescent howl of how, you know, you've not even set foot in your first office job and you're already convinced that you're going to hate it. Um, whereas, you know, honestly, getting like free tea and coffee is actually pretty good. <laughs> and I get to sit down all day. So face. Um, so, and it's a, it's a part of, uh, it's a part of my film watching that I, I, I've not done it for a while. I will still watch things which are kind of, you know, weird and, 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 and challenging and testing in certain ways, but I think it's in different ways now. I think maybe I've, I don't know, uh, um, it's been a while since I've watched something that, that deals with stuff like this, maybe social issues in cinema or something that I've not, this kind of like, confronting a social issue like this so head-on is not something that I've done intentionally to myself just because I guess I don't know whether I feel like I need to have my viewpoint on that challenged so much mm. uh, I don't really need to be shown now that racism is bad because um, I mean you, you exist in the world long enough and you see that it, it is and that it's prevalent and while I wouldn't say that anyone should like, like I agree with you completely. I don't think anyone should be censored or, or, uh, or stopped from, from making whatever art they feel they need to make and putting it out into the world. Uh, the, whether you give, whether you give a broad platform for it is up to the people who operate the platforms and whether people engage with it is up to the individual people. If, if a work is good, it will find a way to, to, to find an audience. And if a work is, is not good, the problem you have there is that sometimes some some things will will slip through the net. I don't believe this is one of those films, to be honest. I'm not saying that I think this one is especially dangerous. But what we've seen, especially recently, is that people will flock to things that are toxic if they feel like it annoys the right people. And this film was made almost, what, 30 years ago now. Uh, and maybe at the time... Uh, uh, this kind of provocation felt like it was needed. Maybe people were complacent or maybe there was just a sort of an underlying unacknowledged base level of racism. And maybe he, maybe the, the filmmakers felt that by throwing this, this hand grenade in would at least bring it to the surface and just make people realize that they live in a racist society and, and that maybe they'd complacently just accepted it. Um, but my, my problem is that I think what I mentioned before is that, when it's from the perspective of the oppressor, not the oppressee, as as well-meaning as it as it can be, unless you have someone like a Shane Meadows who is is speaking from what seems to be very painful personal experience, um, you can end up with something that doesn't quite illuminate in the way that it thinks it does, and I think sometimes this one ultimately ended up there uh it, it's not a recommend but it's also an interesting film that warrants a lot of discussion so yeah thanks for picking it uh how about you gals as i said at the beginning i was quite conflicted with this one uh because i think jeffrey wright did some things well and other things really not very well at all and the way that i could finally kind of surmise that in a nice neat bow was that it was probably a juvenile filmmaker making a film with the subject matter is very adult um and and that's a compliment as well as a bit of a down <laughs> as a bit of as well as an underhanded compliment in that the film's got energy it's got verve 
it's brutal, it's in your face. Um, but I don't think it ever really has time to stop and think about its actions. And I don't think Jeffrey Wright did either, intentionally or unintentionally. For example, we talked about the scene where Hando's reading Mein Kampf and then um, Gabe then sort of talks about um, an afterlife and tarot cards. And it's re- I think that's really clever. You know, it's pseudoscience versus pseudo bullshit ideology. One of them he rejects. One of them he absolutely is all in on. Great scene. Um, unfortunately, there's loads of other scenes where I think they're trying to play with the ambiguity of whether it's right or wrong, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I just think he drops the ball, um, and I don't think he's got the the deftness of touch uh, to, to to execute. So um, yeah, it's a bit of a conflicted one. I I will definitely say that it's not a, a wholehearted recommend. And I agree you need to be cognizant of the the flaws in the film. I think if you watch this at face value, the danger in it will be that you potentially might miss the bigger picture, which is you're not on the side of the gang and this is inherently bad. But you don't need a film to tell you that. I think it's very apt. You know, we're in a current climate right now where politics and tribalism right versus left it's it's all it's all very messy at the minute and i don't like what i see when i put the news on because it seems to be reflecting that constantly um obviously a film like this isn't going to sway you one way or another but um it does have the danger of uh of of preying on impressionable minds um but when you would see it which is normally something i like to do i have no idea you know it's not it's not a friday or a saturday (laughs) or a sunday it's a if you're in that headspace maybe you'll you know maybe watch it for those that you are interested in watching the film uh amazon prime you can rent and purchase it's not no, it's, on a stream. stream on it is, Prime. yeah. It's part of the. Um, it's it's in your Prime Video if you've got a subscription. Oh shit! I bought it. Oh, okay, <laughs> All right. Well, that's a shame. Um, well, now you now you get to watch it every week, so <laughs> it's a real win for you. Just a very quick one, Gully. Just before we we finish here, uh, a shout out to one of our old tutors at Leeds Met. I think it's called Leeds Beckett University now, where we studied uh, Lisa McKnight, who's leaving um, the university after many years' service there, who was a great tutor to us and very important in um, how our our uni uh, films were made and stuff. So I just wanted to say um, good luck to her. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'll um, I'll second that with um, just a personal sort of thank you to Lisa. She championed uh, my psychological horror film that ended up <laughs> being a bit of a muddled mess. But hey um, I had lofty ambitions at that stage and also no script. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, she was a big help for me in us getting that made and getting it on film yeah. and with the money that we had. And um, I, I didn't know whether to say, but she, she enjoyed going out for a drink with us and getting pissed as well. So good on you, Lisa. Right, so... Uh, it struck me that, uh, what, 43 episodes in now that we have not done a film helmed by a female. And I mm. thought, who else other than Catherine Bigelow? And <gasps> yeah, you're right. I watched Dirty Dancing last week and just thought, Patrick Swayze, you are a bloody god amongst us. We're going to be discussing Catherine Bigelow's Tour de Force action film, Point Break. Oh, uh, that's going to be my pick. Yeah. Um, 
Yep. I know that uh, M, if you're listening from Verbal Diorama, she'll be excited. We'll be talking a bit of Keanu, but um, it's all Swayze for me, and maybe a little bit more Crazy Boosie. I know we had a fun with Predator yeah. 2, Devin. <laughs> Thank God for that. I'm gonna sh- in 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 tribute. I'm gonna shoot my gun off and go ah. <laughs> yeah, we'll no doubt mention hot fuzz. I'm sure. Uh, so yeah, that'll be the next throwback. Although I will probably manage expectations for our listeners. It will probably come after our series of Halloween films that we're going to be doing. So a uh, little teaser teaser trailer there for it um we'll we'll put the running schedule out so you can follow us into our journey into halloween what i will say is i'm not entirely sure any of them are particularly scary so team i i think we'll say our goodbyes and uh, i look forward to uh, reconvening for our halloween series so it's galley in glasgow signing out you stay safe out there everyone and it's Devin in london thanks very much for having a lovely chat lads uh, fucking next time, it's Patrick from London. Cheers, guys. Three Jags Herald, it's Matt in South Korea. Thank you, everybody. Cheers, everyone. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. <laughs>